The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. It is the Hard Shoulder. It's Anton in for Kieran, and I'm joined in studio now by the Tonish and Michal Martin, Minister for Foreign Affairs and Minister for Defence. And we're obviously going to talk about that EU Foreign Affairs Council meeting, which took part on uh, Monday, featuring all of the uh, representative ministers from the 27 member states in Kiev in Ukraine. Uh, we should start, though, of course, with the news today that a minimum, it looks like, of 51 people killed in a rocket attack in Kharkiv. What's your reaction? Um, it's absolutely shocking. Uh, it's one of deep sadness that so many innocent civilians, I believe amongst them a six-month-old baby, uh, having coffee in a cafe, uh, were murdered uh, by a Russian um, rocket. Um, and it illustrates the degree to which Russia has consistently targeted civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. And in fact, when I was there, the big fear was this type of bombing campaign for the winter. You use the term murdered. Well, there's no way you, you can um, target any civilian uh, conurbation or urban conurbation uh, like clearly happened here in Kharkiv. Um, I mean, a cafe is not a military installation. Um, and, and in my view, it, there is a, a project underway to terrorise the people of Ukraine. And as I said, the big fear facing people now is the winter period and will energy infrastructure be targeted? In other words, is part of Putin's strategy now to freeze Ukrainians? Uh, literally to death or to migration uh, during the winter period. And and that is the big fear right now. So you, you may have seen in the newspaper much talk about uh, people talking in terms of anti-aircraft um, missiles and defence systems being put in place across Ukraine. Uh, and there's, that has been talked about by Germany and other member states of the European Union to give protection to civilians. Can I ask about the kind of reaction and, and the view that there was and what, what, if any, consensus there was among the foreign ministers of the, of the member states? Because there was a sense at the outset that there were going to be sanctions placed upon Russia that would be crippling to their currency, that would be crippling to their economy, and that would bring them very quickly to heel. None of that seems to have happened. So what's the view now? The view that this is, is a much longer war uh, than anybody would want. The importance of all member states going to a Foreign Affairs Council meeting in Kiev cannot be understated. First time ever this has happened. And it was a demonstration of solidarity with the Ukrainian people and a statement that we're in this with you for the long haul. Because remember, Ukraine wants to join the European Union. It has applied to be a member. We've given it uh, candidate status, but the actual application has to be evaluated with a view to uh, opening the door for negotiations to start. That can be a lengthy process in itself, but it is saying to the Ukrainian people, your future is within the European Union. That matters to those on the front line. You're not just fighting... Um, you know, an aimless war. It's about quality of life. It's about the future of your children. And that future is within the European Union. Secondly, there's a very strong humanitarian dimension to our visit. I met with many of United Nations agencies, UNHCR. Uh, I met with the European Civil um, Assistance Mission there. A lot of Irish people working at the helm at very high levels here. So this is one of the largest ever humanitarian um, programs by the United Nations. And, uh, can I ask and about that? that's not often talked about. When we look at the, the, and the, they're holding a lot together in Ukraine. Indeed, both the humanitarian aspect of the immigration um, um, aspect that there is and, and the level of international support. Do you see that waning? And do you see Russian propaganda chipping away at it? Because some of the mood music, particularly in the US, seems like the tide of support is flowing away from Ukraine. The Russian strategy will be Let's see, can we, can, will, will, will the West, to use that phrase, weigh in for us? Will Europe 
begin to fray at, at, at the edges, will American resolve falter? And is it working? Uh, no, it's not working at the moment. Europe is very solid on this. And in fact, the meeting in Kiev, I think, reinforced that solidity. There was good breakthroughs um, on issues which had dragged on a bit. Um, the eight assistance package out of the European Peace Facility, plus the issues with Poland um, and um, uh, and Ukraine in respect of um, uh, grain and so on. And we, that has got res- in, into a path for a resolution and an agreement. Um, so actually I sensed a, a real holding of the nerve across Europe um, on this um, and a doubling down. Now in terms of sanctions, the view is that medium term Russia cannot withstand those sanctions. It does impair the future of Russia's economy and capacity. Um, but Putin's architecture of power, if you like, is such that he can govern with very little resistance internally um, in terms of the... As in the country can descend into the dark ages, but he can still remain in control, is that Yes, that's essentially it. And he has a significant authoritarian control. Um, And also propaganda and clear the messaging of a, of a kind that we could never obviously contemplate So where, if that is the so, case, what is the ultimate well, end? The Ukraine has developed a peace plan, a 12-point peace plan. Um, they have attracted significant interest from what we call the global south of countries in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere um, around that plan. And there's been two significant conferences in Jeddah and in Copenhagen where quite a significant number of countries were involved. So the hope would be that that kind of pressure globally would put pressure on Russia um, to stop and to pull back and to engage in proper talks. The other big news across this week is the EU agreement in respect of, or at least the early stage of an EU agreement in respect of immigration policy and a shared response to immigration. Now, at first glance, maybe I am cynical in this, it strikes me that some of the capacity of member states to contribute financially rather than in real terms is a way of paying your way out of responsibility. And we heard the Taoiseach saying that that may be what we do, that we contribute in cash rather than the actual effort of looking after people. Well, I don't think you can fault us right now in terms of the actual effort in looking after people. I mean, um, normal asylum, if I use the phrase, asylum seeking applications have gone up fivefold in the last uh, year uh, compared to what we might have thought would have been the average of three and a half thousand. It's now about close to 15,000. We've taken in about 95,000 Ukrainians into the country, which is unprecedented. Uh, and, and, and obviously in the context of a terrible war, these are mothers and children predominantly younger people fleeing war. Um, and in a way, I think that's something, you know, that speaks to the, the, the strengths of Ireland and our value system. Um, and that has created pressures of that, there is no doubt. But I think a lot of people in our education system, uh, in our medical system, I think have responded very well and magnificently to, 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 to that uh, cause. Um, but that's and, what and, I mean and, by and, if and we and move to a situation is, where we use our wallets to replace that kind of action. But I don't think we're just using our wallets to unfairness. I think, I think we have... We have significant pressures in the um, international uh, protection asylum area. The worry I have really is the more broader picture. Why are people traveling in such numbers? Why are they leaving areas in Africa and the Middle East? And it's because of conflict, authoritarian regimes, climate change causing drought and changing farming and making farming unviable. Which then means that we have to pay more to make the quality of life better for many people who are fleeing. Because you can put up all the barriers you like. I mean, you see it in Britain talking about all sorts of, you know, we go to Rwanda, we'll force them here. It hasn't stopped the migration trail. Uh, so fundamentally, what we're doing in overseas assistance and development aid, and when I was in Mozambique, for example, uh, early in the summer, to see some Irish developmental projects like a solar 
driven uh, water system to give bring taps to the villages. That matters. That improves the quality of life of people, makes life habitable, makes agriculture possible. So our work on food production systems in Africa matters because uh, people can potentially have a future. Now, if they have no future, and I spoke to the UN, the military advisor to the UN who was here in Dublin yesterday, he made this point. People will leave because the, 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 you know, there's no alternative for them. And that's the, a problem. You mentioned the UK response, the, the thing of shipping uh, migrants to Rwanda and the deal, the extraordinary deal that was done there. In part, that is in response to what we saw as a, a the, the formation or the, the, um, the fermenting of um, a swing to the right and a, an anti-immigrant um, feeling. We thought for some time that we were immune to that. Recent events would, would suggest the otherwise, would suggest otherwise. Are you concerned about that? rise of the right, the rise of the anti-immigrant feeling in the country? Yes, I am. I, look, migration is a phenomenon of the 21st century. And there are a number of factors responsible for it. I've I instanced a number, climate change, conflict, coup d'etats in the Sahel, which create, which allow space for jihadists to run, to rule the roost, which means people are getting out of those places then. They move to the Middle East, they move to Libya, they want to get to Europe. And what are the far right uh, trope that says they so, cross a lot of Europe to get to us? So the point I'm making is that, that basically we have to stand back and get understand the origins of the problem, the, the reasons why people are moving and see can we help people to stay put. But what about um, the domestic issue at home where you see the kind of protests that we've seen, where you see the kind of, of stoking of fear and tension? What, if anything, can be done about that? And do you think there's any legitimacies to the concerns that underpin that? I think some of what gets said is appalling and, and wrong and has to be challenged. The rumour machine that goes out in respect of young males, for example. Um, and um, we have to work very hard to, 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 to challenge that narrative, which is a false narrative. There, there was a fantastic piece of work done called The Wetsuit Man by a Norwegian journalist some years ago. Uh, and it was following the journey of two young individuals from Syria fleeing the war in Syria. It's called the wetsuit man because they found the skeletal remains of a young boy, a young man in, in, in a wetsuit. And they found a similar skeletal remains hundreds of miles away. And what was it eventually after the journal, the police couldn't follow it through, the journalists tracked it. Two young men who wanted to pursue higher education in Europe because they were denied because of the war in Syria. That is the reality, the human reality of migration. Uh, and in, in, in the talk that goes on with some of the far right, uh, if those two young men had come into Ireland, they would be called rapists overnight and, uh, you know, some horrible, they were responsible for horrible deeds. But the so so we have to challenge, minister, uh, no, I, mean, I, think, but I make the point is that we have to all of the time like we had migration in this country, we lost four million people uh, after a famine. For a minute, they went to, to the pick United up on States. That analogy, that, that never allow. What I'm trying to say, we should never dehumanize people. Indeed, for but the humanization the of that kind of of illustration doesn't counter what the far right is saying in local communities. You can feel sympathetic towards those individuals who lose their life crossing the Mediterranean and still at the same time say, I believe that the people who are coming into my local area are criminals, rapists, whatever it might be. How do you counter that? Well, you counter it by telling the, the, the real story and, and not allowing people to dehumanize fellow human beings. It does create pressure. I'm not, I'm not um, how would I put it, uh, oblivious to the pressures, the natural pressures it creates on communities, on schools, on housing and so on like that. I understand that. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that when I, as foreign minister, look at the world, uh, it's conflict after conflict. We are not in a good space globally. That is what is happening. That's what we're, you know, we're, we're being impacted by. And so we've got to really then support and promote a positive foreign policy, a positive engagement in the world, like we do, in fairness to Ireland, in terms of our engagement in, in, in Africa and elsewhere, 
making life meaningful, trying to, with European Union, create scenarios where we, we deny the, 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 what, what's going on and undermine the authoritarian regimes. And by the way, Putin, Belarus, uh, this idea of weaponizing of migration is, is, is alive and well, okay. and that has to be resisted. A couple of other things that I want to uh, talk to you about. Off the back of the far right thing, the, we were speaking earlier on to Lisa Chambers, the um, Fianna Fáil leader, about the task force on politician security. And I think back to your early stages in, in senior politics, there was a time where armed detectives were the common thing, where Justice and I think Foreign Affairs and Taoiseach had additional support beyond just a single detective. Are we heading back there? Uh, we are heading back to uh, stronger security for public representatives, unfortunately. Uh, one of the great things about Ireland is the uh, immediacy and the access that people have to their public representatives, which people from outside of Ireland always comment on. Um, and particularly our ministers, people just don't believe that you can see. But do you think it's a more uh, dangerous time for politicians than well, it has I, I'm, been? I'm, I'm, uh, I've had different periods in politics. It's not the first time I've been challenged, you know, by people on the far left, I would have been stopped in streets with cameras and phones as well, you know, over a decade or so to go. Now the far right are at it. Um, I remember what happened to John Burton, um, you know, which was not a nice thing um, at that time. But is it um, worse now than earlier in the career? It, it, I would think it's worse now. And following some of the, the narrative on, on social media, you know, I worry about the office. I have people working in my office uh, on, on, on our behalf. And that would be my prime concern because very often protests are held outside offices. But you can't have armed protection for them. No, we don't. Uh, but we do take precautions. We do take steps to, to protect people. Um, and I think the women in the Doyle do feel threatened and feel very insecure um, because of, of both uh, threats online. But also, I think what we saw in the Doyle uh, some weeks back was a new development. I haven't seen that kind of um, hate uh, in evidence um, and just sheer aggression without any coherent thought process. Were you happy it. with the Garda response? Should the Garda not have been slightly more aggressive in dealing with that? Well, again, look, I'm, I don't deal with the operational... Uh, well, you watched it. I think the Garda, but I do think, you know, I would be strong on protecting the right of citizens to walk their streets, and I would be particularly strong on the right of parliamentarians to walk their street. I, I take issue with that. Um, and, um, you know, I, I really get angry about that as an individual. Part of all, I get it from being a politician. We are in a republic. We must accept diversity of opinion. We must accept people's freedom to protest. And the line at which you can't get out of Leinster House is the one that you can't cross. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm entitled to walk out of Leinster House. I'm entitled to walk anywhere. And I've had far left people try to stop me. I've had far right people try to stop me or or harangue me or harass. But I keep going. Uh, no one will ever undermine my right to walk the streets of my of our country. One final thing before I let you go: the, B- the BBC just uh, announced this, so it, it is it may become a, an issue for you depending on how the next election in the UK goes. Um, the Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer has spoken to the BBC, and he has said that a referendum on Irish unification is, and I quote not even on the horizon. And he has previously said that he would campaign for Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK if such a referendum was held in his lifetime. Now, and I quote the BBC, Sir Keir has said, I don't think we're anywhere near that kind of question. It's absolutely hypothetical. It's not even on the horizon. What do you think? Well, again, I haven't seen the full context of, of his remarks. I'm not well, surprised. He makes it pretty clear. I'm not surprised in terms of all of the statements that the Labour Party have made in recent times in respect of Brexit, economy, there's a general election on the way in Britain and um, it seems to me that they're, uh, everything they say now is weighed through the prism of the next general election in the United Kingdom. I'm not going to get involved in that. But the Good Friday Agreement is there. Uh, within the Good Friday Agreement, there are mechanisms 
So uh, he may have a road to Damascus epiphany after the next election. Well, I think is that it, it? It, what I'm simply saying is that in the first instance, we want the executive restored. There is an obligation on all concerned in Northern Ireland to restore the executive and the assembly. The people have voted for an assembly. They haven't got that. Politics needs to work in Northern Ireland. The north-south bodies need to work. They're affected by the failure to have their executive restored. That's not good enough. And do you and think the, the border poll is going to be on the, on the cards soon? Well, I, 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 my view is that within the Good, the good Friday Agreement, there are frameworks there to evolve this country. And I believe, you know, I believe in Irish people in the first instance being reconciled and as a people that we, we, we have unity. Uh, and I think over time, uh, I think we can improve upon where we are now. Mayall Martin Thonisha, thank you very much. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.